this is a Crusader Foundation. This is Lucy speaking, and I am here with Nick Canuso, author of Land of the Free, Human Trafficking in America and Solutions to End It. How are you today, Nick? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to speak with you again. Well, it's been lovely to meet you and, and chat with you. Um, could you give our listeners a little bit of a background on what your experience in human trafficking is? You have quite a few years under your belt. Absolutely. So my journey actually began in uh, February of 2010. At the time, I was the prayer room director of a place called the Orlando House of Prayer in Orlando, Florida. And I was asked to assist in putting together a prayer room that was a mobilized prayer group of individuals from all over the country to intercede and pray for FBI agents and teams of individuals and trained personnel uh, who were going to go out into the streets of South Beach, Miami specifically, uh, because that was when the Super Bowl was going to be taking place. And I was informed that something called human trafficking, also coined as modern day slavery, uh, that it, it was um, the Super Bowl would generate a concentrated uh, environment within the city where I wouldn't say that human trafficking increases because human trafficking takes place all the time. It's not like it just suddenly happens during the Super Bowl. But what happens is, is, is there's, there's a big concentration of it that follows all the fans to that city and they capitalize on these big events such as the Super Bowl. And we have more youth and more people who are at higher risk because a lot of your traffickers are wanting to maximize their profits. Now, when I was informed about this issue of human trafficking during the Super Bowl, I'll be honest, I'm a Midwest boy. Um, you know, I, I was brought up with, with the concept that we all have choices to make and there's consequences to our choices. And I was under the false mindset that many of the people in the United States of America, at least, if they fell into this category, it's probably because they made poor choices. Uh, when I heard human trafficking, it conjured up you know, images of children in cages and, you know, people in ropes or chains. And I, you know, I was thinking more of the Eastern European block or things that I heard about Thailand or, you know, certain countries where maybe, you know, there was extreme poverty. Uh, but to think of United States of America and South Beach, Miami of all places, nah, I, I had a hard time accepting that. So I agreed to go down and help out with the prayer room ministry. But because I'm such a firm believer in uh, what I consider intercessory evangelism or intercession, uh, praying for your city and seeing city transformation take place through prayer, because I'm such a firm believer in that, I believe that we cannot effectively intercede, which really means coming into the agreement with God's heart, unless we agree with that issue ourselves. So yeah. I help to organize the prayer, but how can I consciously pray for an issue that I have a hard time accepting is even happening here in the United States. To me, that's, that's not very effective intercession. So once I assisted with some of the, some of the things, I did some worship there and, and helped out with a few of the organizational details, uh, I had a simple request. I said, I would like to have a brief training and I would like to go out on the streets and see this for myself. So that's exactly what happened. Um, I had a small little one hour training 
and a prayer partner and myself went out onto the streets. And for the next 48 hours, uh, I said a little prayer and sort of challenged God to uh, expose me to the darkest of dark. And the experiences that I went through um, just within those 48 hours were life-changing. Absolutely. 48 life hours. Wow. Uh, just, just really two, two nights, um, you know, two days, two nights, and it was pretty incredible. And I, I outlined that in the first chapter of my book. I talk about how I was a skeptic, and I even kind of poke fun at myself because, um, you know, I've been blessed by God in many ways. And I, I'm not, uh, let's just say I'm, I'm, you know, not above being honest with the fact that I had a little bit of a selfish motivator with going down there. I just knew that God was going to bless me with a Super Bowl ticket. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, yes, God, this is what I've been praying for my whole life. And I'm going to go down there and I don't know how you're going to do it, but you're going to bless me with the Super Bowl ticket. <laughs> Of course, I say that somewhat in jest, but it was one of those funny thoughts you have in the back of your head. You're like, you know, yeah, I'm down here for the atmosphere, and God's going to bless me. Uh, but, you know, little did I, he did. Did I know what he had for me. He did. <laughs> he blessed me indeed. And so what transpired over the next two days, um, like I said, I, I outline a lot in detail. Uh, but let's just say that we encountered things that go beyond what, what we consider street prostitution. Um, uh, dealing with the Russian mafia, um, being able to assist a 13-year-old boy who was a runaway who was being uh, uh, sold on the street. Um, in fact, one of the things that I point out in my book, and one of the things that I, I really try and stress when I do trainings with individuals is that people don't realize traffickers love to play on our naivety, and they hide in plain sight. And to give you an idea of what hiding in plain sight means, um, when my prayer partner and I were walking down the street, I saw this boy who was 13. I'd been involved in youth ministry. My oldest son at the time was 13. So I just kind of knew, like, this boy's 13. I just had that gut feeling. And he was sitting all alone, and it was about 11.30 at night. And what was interesting is he was sitting in a doorway of a pet shop. And the pet shop said, puppies for sale. And it was neon light, and it was lit up, and this young boy was sitting there. And uh, I, I watched him for a bit. I didn't see any adults except some really kind of creepy-looking guy uh, about two lampposts down, maybe about, you know, three-quarters of a block away. And even though he was looking across the street, he was on the same block that the young boy was, but he was looking across the street, but you could kind of tell that his peripheral was keeping that young boy locked up. Um, you know, it was almost kind of like when you see those cartoons and you see the eyesight and the little dashed line that kind of connects to whatever a character is looking at. It was yeah. almost like you could see that. You could just feel it. Um, yeah. And I think that came a lot with our, I think we had kind of a heightened sense because we had been walking the streets quite a bit and praying and really, you know, seeking discernment and talking to people. Well, and you were aware, you were looking for it. Most people don't look for it. So you were on a mission. Absolutely. So, so I go up to the young boy and I say, hey, um, are, are you okay? And he looked up at me and in a, you know, very, um, what we would consider an effeminate voice. Um, he, uh, he smiled and batted his eyes and he said, why did you want to play? 
And I was very taken back by that. And uh, I looked at the young boy and I said, are, are your parents around? And he said, oh, my daddy is over there. And pointed to kind of the scuzzy looking guy. And then he smiled again and, and made, made another comment similar to, do you want to play? Um, and so, you know, we, we promptly called our, our contact within the FBI and uh, reported it. The young boy was rescued. Uh, he was a runaway. And uh, the, the gentleman in question was um, taken into custody. Uh, but, you know, unfortunately, in situations like that, you know, they, they don't have much to go on. Um, you know, they, they were able to take that guy in custody for a little bit and question him. Uh, why are you, you know, uh, with this 13-year-old boy? But, um, and then they were able to, to get the boy the help that they needed, uh, that he needed. But, uh, you know, so, so when it comes to fighting human trafficking, uh, one of the things that you have to, to learn is that you have a lot of victories that are victories because you're, you're after the rescue. You want to pull someone out of that darkness. And that's the, the first priority is the safety of the victim. The justice for the perpetrator doesn't always come. Absolutely. And unfortunately, sometimes um, the safety of the victim is only a brief victory uh, because a lot of people don't really understand the mental shackles and chains that have been put in place on that victim. And it's a long road uh to to what we would call recovery um but you know that's that's a whole nother topic of discussion is is what constitutes recovery uh but i would say in general keeping someone from continuous physical and mental and emotional uh, abuse and damage that sometimes can you know be from 10 to 25 times a night um getting them out of that situation is definitely the first step of victory and recovery Right. And a child that is abused often turns into an adult that is abused. So the more children you can save and get them help and healing before they get to a stage of adult abuse of whatever kind is, is priority. And that's an interesting point that you bring up because one of the things that also happened during my trip in Miami is that uh, I... For the first time became aware of the realities of how prostitution is linked to human trafficking uh you know at the time i distinguished the two as, as as two separate entities you know um you're brought up and raised with this mindset that prostitution is the oldest profession and you know i can almost see kind of the smug look of maybe a you know a, a famous news anchor from the 80s or 90s i won't name names but you know you can almost see kind of the smirk on their face of often considered the oldest profession in the world, prostitution, dot, dot, dot. And we're just raised with this mindset. And, and Hollywood does a lot to promote the independent, uh, strong, sexual woman who, you know, knows how to capitalize on her sexuality and her independent spirit to go out and forge a, a life for herself, almost an entrepreneurial pursuit. And we glamorize it with Julia Roberts. And we glamorize it with... Um, Billy Piper, you know, uh, actresses who have these big time shows about being a prostitute and an escort, and it it's, uh, empowers them. But the reality from that is so far removed from what we see in Hollywood. And one of the things that, that really impacted me when I was in Miami is that 
I saw the prostitutes when I first got there, but I was ignoring them because I was asking God to show me the, the real human trafficking. My last night there, my last afternoon, uh, I won't go into detail with what I saw. I do explain it in my book. Um, I don't get graphic, but um, let's just say that, that I saw some interesting marketing tools that pimps were actually using to generate sales for their women. And one of the things that stuck out to me is, and this was right on South Beach Street, right where it curves off, right where it ends up and goes right onto the beach. Anyone who's been there, they kind of know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a bunch of, you know, tree planters there. And there had to be about four or five pimps. And each of them had their own, what they call a stable, just to give you an idea of the dehumanization that happens when it comes to prostitution. So a, a pimp, when he looks at his girls, he, he, that's what's called his stable. Um, and what I witnessed is fear, intimidation, control. And I saw how these, these men, if you want to call them that, which I, I don't, these, these guys, um, they would simply nod, snap their fingers or point or even slightly gesture a certain way. And I watched how these girls would move and go to work. And, uh, it really deeply impacted me because I, I saw that control. And it got me thinking differently about what it meant to connect human trafficking with prostitution. Later, as I started doing research, and when I realized that the average age of entry into prostitution, now keep in mind, this is your average age across the board, is 13 to 14 years old. And let and, me interrupt you for one yeah. moment. The official definition of sex trafficking according to Homeland Security's Blue Campaign, is commercial sex through force, fraud, or coercion. If a victim is under 18 years old, they are always a sex trafficking victim. There's no such thing as child prostitution. Absolutely. And so this is what you are referring to now, is they're not underage prostitutes. They are sex trafficking victims. Absolutely. In fact, that's one of my biggest pet peeves um, from day one when I got involved with this. And I would, I would actually hear police officers call 14-year-old girls underage prostitutes. And it just blew my mind. As, as a father who has sons and daughters, uh, you know, and, and, and again, I'm, I'm always really, I always make it a point to be really careful with the language that I choose, especially in such a delicate conversation. Um, but I, I don't know if people really understand what goes into this lifestyle. And it's like I was talking to this, this police officer who's actually a woman. Um, and, and I point that out only because, you know, a lot of times we can all fall into these sort of stereotypes. And you might think that, you know, a woman police officer would be more compassionate. Um, but she, you know, she knew nothing about, um, the, the feelings or the emotions that went into the anti-trafficking community when it came to calling a young girl an underage prostitute. Uh, in fact, she was very strong in, in, um, believing that a lot of these young girls freely choose to go into the lifestyle. And when I encounter that, um, you know, I, I try and get people to understand to, to think about when you're 13 and 14 years old. And we all know that the hormones range. We get that. Right. Hormones are there. No question that a 13 and 14 year old isn't going to be charged energetically 
um, in, in, in a relational way. That's, that's just a fact. That's biology. However, what 13 or 14-year-old, and think back to how you were at that age, what 13 or 14-year-old boy or girl, boy or girl, would freely choose to have sometimes 10 to 15 sweaty, smelly, stinky guys of all ages, old, ugly, thin, fat, and have anywhere from 10 to 15 of them smashing their, their body against you and using you again and again. I, I don't know anyone, guy or girl, who would freely choose to do that night after night. And so that's, that's why- It's important to point out they're not just, this is an average 12 to 14 years old, right? That's the average. So half of those are under that age. Oh yeah. And, and that's, that's, that's where we really get into the stomach. I mean, as if that wasn't stomach churning enough, right. you, you raising that point, that's where it really begins to, to get deep into the topic, um, if you will, because one of the things I, I had the privilege of, of doing a training for um, in the Orlando area, what we call the Metro Bureau of Investigation. And one of the things that I pointed out at the time that was really shocking to everyone there uh, and this was 2016, it was just four years ago, is I explained to them that my research was showing that there was a trend, a big uptick in infant trafficking where they were going to see a lot more cases of two years old and under um, uh, of children being sexually trafficked. And not only that, but that we would also see a big uptick of women who were uh, abusers in that situation. And, you know, it's one of those things where, I mean, you wish that you weren't right. You, you wish that it wasn't true. But unfortunately, over the last four years, there's been a huge increase. And we've seen that all over the news reports. I think just this last week, uh, here, in, here in the Orlando area, uh, a, a woman was busted um, who was selling her, her two-year-old. Wow. Um, had been doing it for about a year. Um, and, and yeah, there's, there's a lot that goes into that. Um, but that's, that's where we have to get out of this mindset of the oldest profession and out of this mindset of, oh, well, they made poor choices. When the average age is 13 to 14, and it's actually younger for boys, the average age, um, and that's a whole nother topic, but when that's the average age and we're seeing an uptick in infant trafficking and toddler trafficking, uh, this is a real serious issue and it, and it changes our perspective now when you see that 17 or 18 or even 22 year old woman out on the street or even 30 something year old woman out on the street, a woman who's been able to survive that long. Um, we see an old woman and we say, oh, you know, we make all these judgments, drugs, alcohol, ran away, whatever. She's freely choosing to do this because she wants to make a living. And, and, and unfortunately, that's a stereotype. We don't think, oh my gosh, what happened to that girl when she was 12 or 13 years old and has she been, right. in, the, been in this lifestyle this long? And that's where we need to really educate people to, to have a compassion and have an understanding, to not be so desensitized uh, with our sexualized culture, and to realize that, that I think one of the most important things that I stress to people is that human trafficking is, is not a sexual problem. It's not a sexual issue. We, because it deals with sexuality, we want to make it a sexual issue, but it's not. Human trafficking is about power. It's about control. 
And most importantly, it really is about the inability to effectively relate to fellow human beings in the way that we were created to relate to each other, to see the value in each other, to see the dignity in each other. I mean, it really comes down to those basic social justice issues of who we were created to be and how each of us have an important role to play. Wow, thank you for that. Now, I read your book and you started off speaking about, of course, um, recruitment and trafficking, and you outlined different kinds of trafficking, sex trafficking, labor trafficking, organ trafficking, infant trafficking. Um, have you seen much, have you been involved with much organ trafficking in the United States? So really interesting, and, and as you dive into that chapter on organ trafficking, you'll see that um, the, the story has been attempted to be covered. Newsweek, Newsweek of all, magazines which is kind of a, a mixed bag because they've they've also run some really interesting anti um well they've, they've run some interesting articles um kind of inferring that human trafficking isn't necessarily real but on the flip side they ran another article about organ trafficking and in fact i talk about a special news reporter um in that chapter who was banned from uh, a couple of hospitals in the united states um, I also outline how I, I believe it was in uh, 2011 was the very first um, prosecution of organ trafficking in the United States of America. Now, interesting thing to note, and I, I have not, um, I have not read the updated trafficking in persons report, mm -hmm. uh, but I do I'll know that State Department. Yes. Uh, I, I do know that as of a couple of years ago, the United States was still one of the last nations to recognize organ trafficking as a part of human trafficking. Um, but I will say that my, my own investigation on organ trafficking revealed a lot of frightening things that uh, many organizations are not talking about. And I, I you know, I, I don't want to go in too much to speculation. And in my book, I do my best to really try and, I, I, I do a little speculation in the book, but I really try my best, you know, to, to bring up the, the reports, the investigative reports that were done, the cases where uh, prosecution um, was successful in, in prosecuting organ trafficking. But uh, that said, um, having connected with a lot of uh, African Americans in the urban community, let's just say that organ trafficking is something that very few people talk about is a real concern to a lot of African-Americans in, in different urban communities. And something that I, I really haven't heard anyone in the mainstream in any way address. And I don't know if you remember, I, I wanna say this was about four years ago, there was a, a young boy who was a wrestler and someone's, someone's gonna know this story. Um, and I wanna say it was in Georgia, but, uh, he ended up missing and they couldn't find him and it made national news. Um, they eventually found him rolled up in a wrestling mat in the school. Now, follow up to that story, that was big nationwide news and this was about four years ago, I think. And um, a follow up story happened about three or four days later. And it was an interesting little like snippet that was in the newspaper and I just happened to be reading the newspaper that day. And it mentioned that the young boy's organs were missing. 
And I just found that to be really um, jarring to me that, that this should be big news. But having researched human trafficking and seeing the way that the news media often reports it, to be honest, I really wasn't very surprised. Um, one of the things that I did is I, I had actually collected several um, local television news stations reporting on human trafficking. Interesting note, every time that they reported a case of human trafficking, they get really serious, but that human trafficking case would be reported in a way where it was sandwiched between kind of like the last major headline news, and then following it would immediately be some kind of fluff piece that almost contradicted the seriousness of human trafficking where, let me give you an example, one of the, the starkest contrasts was, um, I saw something about human trafficking here in Orlando. And then right after that, they, they ran this piece on spring break in Daytona. And, you know, showed you girls in bikinis and talked about college kids from around the country. And they kind of made it a fun, playful, sexualized, you know, little hint of sexualized, fun fluff piece that came right after a very serious human trafficking report. That report was about 30 seconds, if even, probably in and out of people's ears over their head to where people go, how come I don't hear this on the news? And I'm kind of like, well, that's because they, they do their best to sort of, if it's big enough, report a little bit of it, but then they sandwich it between stuff because it, they don't want to bring people down. So it's kind of like, if it's a big enough story, they're going to touch on it, but only if they have to, only if they're forced to. And so when it came to organ trafficking, I found that there were some really interesting articles out there where you would see these follow-up things where maybe they would mention and, you know, investigators say that their, you know, their, their eye was missing. Um, the, because uh, that's very valuable on the, on the black market. In fact, right about the same time, there was worldwide news about a uh, young girl in China whose eyes were gouged out right in front of the public and um, they talked about, you know, organ trafficking with that story. And that was about the same time when this boy went disappearing. So organ trafficking, a lot of people, you know, they say it's an urban myth. Uh, there's jokes about it. There's, you know, old funny cartoon videos on YouTube that uh, were popular that made fun of kind of, you know, oh, my kidney's missing. And, and you'll see it on sitcoms. But unfortunately, with just about every myth, there's always some kind of a truth at the base of it. And when you start delving into the issue of organ trafficking, you realize that there's not only a truth, but it's an extremely ugly truth that is directly tied into infant trafficking. And, and we've had some really interesting cases over the last few years that have sought to expose some of the organized um, trafficking of organs, specifically with infants. So I do outline that more in my book, and you know, for the for the sake of you know the tone, I I don't want to go too much into the right the of it. One of the things that you mentioned regarding that part of it is that um, I'm having trouble finding it right now, but essentially that people are intending to have children in order to then traffic those organs for other more desirable children to keep them alive. Yeah, so there, there was actually a case in California um, that I do talk about in my book uh, where there was a, a couple who were quite wealthy 
and they would drive across the border and uh, they, had, they, they had a young girl and they were basically paying, paying the young girl to be pregnant and to use her baby so that they could harvest, I believe, one of the kidneys for their own infant who needed a kidney transplant. Um, so this, this was a, a situation where they found a young girl said, hey, you know, we, we want you to get knocked up and we want to have the baby. And uh, that was for the express purpose of saving their child. Um, and, and, you know, that sounds like an extreme isolated event. But I think what a lot of people have a hard time with, having done this for 10 years, we, you and I, uh, in a previous conversation, we're talking about um, people's threshold of understanding. And one of the things that I think has helped people understand this is to realize it's, it's like any business. You know, if, if I go to the corner and if, and if I sell lemonade and I make a lot of money, I'm probably going to go back to that corner again and I'm going to sell more lemonade. And then I may actually expand my options. And people have to realize that, that if someone is out there making money, there's going to be someone who's going to be motivated to use that same system to make more money. And they're going to want to diversify. They're going to want to incorporate. And, you know, I'm, I'm speaking somewhat, you know, metaphorically. I mean, it's not like sure. they're going to incorporate with the IRS, of course, but they're going to incorporate. Right. They're, they're going to bring in more people because now they realize we need to expand this operation. And if someone is making money with it, um, you can definitely bet that there is an industry behind it. And as I uncovered a lot of the infant trafficking specifically tied into organs, I realized that there is a very strong global industry behind it. And I know we live in a day and age, and I just want to, want to qualify this. I understand we live in a day and age where so many people are so quick to say conspiracy, conspiracy. Oh, that's a conspiracy. That sounds right. so much like, like a dark web, you know, left wing, right wing, you know, uh, universal wing, you know, space tinfoil hat conspiracy. And I get that. I get it because I was there 10 years ago. I had a hard time swallowing all of this stuff. But when you are looking into the eyes of a man, a man who is a grown man of only 18 or 19 years old, and he is talking to you about his harrowing experiences between the ages of 10 and 15, and he's giving you specific information and you see the tears and you know the pain and you know his story of getting rescued and you get to hear the firsthand colorizations of what happened. You know, at, at what point do, do we move away from the word conspiracy as if it's made up into understanding that a conspiracy is simply a bunch of people coming together to have an agreement to do something. Right. And that's what happens when it comes to any form of human trafficking. It is a group of people or an individual who is conspiring to do something that they want to enact and they want to do it in a way that um, they're, they're kept out of the limelight. And that's unfortunately kind of a big thing when it comes to human trafficking. Um, on the flip side, yeah, you've got your, you've got your classic pimps who want to be seen. Um, because it goes with the prestige. But that's why this topic is so vast because, and, and that's why it was so hard to put together a book um, that I felt was linear and would explain all the different corners 
Because on one hand, we can be talking about human trafficking where young boys are being trafficked throughout the world and using state park systems and using, you know, the, the, the elite, um, the, the wealthy, and it's hidden. And then on the flip side, we can talk about your classic, you know, what we see is the 1970s pimp with the mink coat, the feather and the cap and the, the Cadillac or, you know. Right. Um, and, and it's flashy and glitzy and they got the cane. Uh, both are human trafficking. Um, but it's like any industry. There's many different levels. There's many different wings. There's many different aspects to it. And it all comes down to... Um, really understanding how the system works and how the system, no matter where you're at in it, how it preys upon uh, young people who are susceptible to control and manipulation. Right. And there are even darker areas that we should touch on a little bit, but are very difficult to put words to. One thing that you mentioned in your book, and we all many of us understand to be true is cult activity um, as far as trafficking is concerned. And it's, it's a sensitive topic because it's a very dangerous topic and, and no one wants to, people have a hard time admitting that it happens. It's another one of the conspiracy ideas, but there's so much proof out there that it's happening, it's real, and it's horrible. Um, I don't want to go too deep into the subject because it is very sensitive, but I would like to acknowledge the fact that it does exist. And, and just because um, scandals can uh, wrap up doesn't mean that it ended. It's still happening out there, the, the cult activity related to human trafficking. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, when I started my journey into combating human trafficking, uh, as I told you, I was extremely naive. And I, I went through quite an interesting process for six months. It took me a good six months to really uh, digest what I'd experienced and to sort of figure out where I was going to move forward from there. Um, because it's easy to sort of like kind of go, well, that was a unique experience and I'm going to kind of mark that in my journal as like one of those weird experiences that I had, but now it's time to go back to life. Um, so I, uh, unfortunately I, I tried to operate with that mentality. I, I did try and go back to life. I tried to go back to life as usual. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, there's a, a, a quote by William Wilberforce. Um, you can choose to look the other way, but you can never again say, I did not know. Right. And, um, and your, your listeners can look up William Wilberforce and, you know, the abolitionist movement and all that stuff. Um, but, uh, that was a quote that I'd come across, um, shortly after learning about human trafficking, because it's often used in the anti-trafficking movement. Uh, and it, it kept coming up in my head, kept impacting me. So, as time went on for the next six months, and I started researching this, I, I would go to meetings, and I'd try and get trained, and honestly, I would walk out of those places just frustrated. I was like, I, I'm really not learning anything. I'm not getting my answers questions. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm frustrated, and I feel like they're not doing a good job of presenting this in a way so that I can be empowered 
and encouraged to go forth and make a difference. In fact, after six months, I still don't really get how this is happening in America. How is this taking place in America? And I wanted answers. Well, as I started researching and looking for more answers, I don't know what it was, but I just had this part where I was like, why aren't we hearing about the boys? Because remember, when I was out, I saw a 13-year-old boy who was being trafficked. And nowhere in no organization had I heard anyone mention the young boys being trafficked. In fact, I, I will even go out and say to this day, there are still anti-trafficking organizations that do not talk about male trafficking, will not address it. And in fact, I, I've been really, really saddened and disappointed by some, some organizations that have even come out to almost deny the fact or the reality that trafficking of boys is in existence. Now, why am I bringing that up when it comes to SRA or what we know as satanic ritualistic abuse? Right. Um, well, it all, it all goes back, I would say it all goes back, but in the modern age, it all goes back to a gentleman named Alistair Crowley. And this is where we kind of kind of diverge and go off and veer off into sort of a weird path. Right. Um, and this will lose a lot of people because, again, we talked about thresholds. And for some people, it's just enough to think that, oh, my gosh, some 13-year-old girl has been manipulated and coerced by some boy on Xbox who's 18 but really working for a 30-year-old. And in 48 hours, they were able to literally brainwash her and convince her to do things she would have never done. And now she's being pimped out. Sure. That enough is, I mean, and, and let's face it, that's massive. That's a huge thing to digest. So that, that's so big that, that I honestly believe that's one of the reasons why the boys are the silent victims that do not have the advocates that they need. Right. And be, because it, it gets so much darker and deeper, and again, we're not comparing. It's not like it's more deeper or darker than what the girls experience, but the it's world different. is different. The, the environment, the motivations behind it are different. So it all comes back to a, a guy named Alistair Crowley. And Alistair at one time was voted the most evil man in the world. Now, Alistair did a lot of experimentation with what was known as sex magic. And he researched a lot of ancient, ancient texts. Um, and he wanted to channel what's known as the Nephilim spirit. This is where we get into a little bit of kind of the weird stuff. You know, some people listening may be like, oh my gosh, this is getting a little too um, television supernatural for me. You know, like are Sam and Dean Winchester going to show up and start, right. you know, but these people exist, and it's out there, and we need to admit it so that we can at least be aware and eventually yeah. help. Definitely. So, so going back to Alistair Crowley, he found that in his belief that it was more effective to channel these spirits or these entities and for those people who don't know what a Nephilim is, a Nephilim is considered to be the offspring of angels mating with humans. Right. Were um, they, they were the giants. In they were the giants right? of the age that walked the earth. Yes. Now, there's a lot of theological debate. I've read it all. I've seen it all. I, I understand there's different interpretations. I understand that there's different things. I'm just sharing 
in the context of this guy, Alistair Crowley, right. who believed that he could channel these Nephilim spirits, that when the flood came, and even though giants showed up on the earth afterwards, they were sort of like the, the um, deluded descendants, but the true Nephilim were considered to be kind of like your demigods. So like your Zeus or Baal, who often, you know, are believed to be one and the same. And we're getting off on a big tangent here. But bringing all of this back to, to the issue of trafficking of boys, Alistair really believed that, that in abusing these young boys, that through their rape and through their physical abuse, that you could channel these spirits and you would receive power on earth riches, success, and fame. So a lot of this goes back to, and, and this was about the, you know, this was early 20th century stuff. So early 1900s. Um, so what I found is the more that I researched the issue of missing boys and trafficking of boys, uh, the more I began to discover this is extremely organized. It's extremely well-routed. And they have done a phenomenal job of staying out of the news and away from the limelight. Um, one of the things that I would point, if, if people are interested, one of the things that I got moved into, and, and this is because I'm originally from Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, is something that was called the Franklin Credit Union Scandal, um, or just the Franklin Scandal. And uh, that that was an issue in the eight, late 80s, well, really the 80s um, and into the late 80s, where there would be some high-end dinners that would take place in Omaha, Nebraska. And as a rumor, or as I've heard from firsthand testimony, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to be all legal and stuff, not like anybody really cares, but yeah, I, I want people to know I, I do have an awareness. I'm, I'm not just like throwing stuff out there to be salacious. <laughs> A lot of this not your witnesses. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, but from, from what I discovered is supposedly or allegedly, um, there would be high-end dinners that would take place in Omaha, Nebraska, and young boys would be serving uh, the tables, and then you would have the ability to bid on which boy that you wanted to um, have join you that evening. And uh, one of those young boys is rumored to be a young, young man named Johnny Gosh. And Johnny Gosh is one of the first, uh, he's, he's one of, there were, there were two boys that were the first two boys to be put on um, uh, milk cartons, and Johnny Gosh was one of them. And it's an interesting story. I encourage everyone to, um, to look up uh, the story of Johnny Gosh. There is a documentary on Netflix uh, you can look it up, just do a quick Google search. Um, and it, it's a fascinating story. Uh, fast forward, my wife and I had the privilege of uh, meeting his mother and having dinner with her um, about, uh, I want to say, four years ago. And uh, a lot of people don't know this, but Johnny Gosh was found. Wow. Uh, he, was, he was first found by an investigator who was really good with technology, who was able to break into some uh, Russian-based servers that had uh, just thousands and thousands of uh, child porn videos. And so unfortunately, his mother um, had to witness a sort of a timeline of her son growing up in the context of porn. Wow. Uh, and seeing him used. And uh, I, 
I saw some of those pictures firsthand. Um, I mean, to this day, like I, I still remember the emotions of when I saw it. Um, you, there's one where he's literally hogtied on a bed, uh, just as underwear, and you just see the fear in his eyes. Um, they actually had a, a, a laundry bag of um, dirty clothes that had the name of the location that he was at. Um, so I, I, I'm not going to say any more about that. You know, I, I try and people who want to investigate, um, you know, I'm always sensitive about other people's stories and other people's information. Uh, all the stories that I, I share in my book are either um, directly, you know, by permission or um, just general domain stuff, uh, right. stuff that's already out there. But yeah. uh, I will say that if, if you knew the name of the location, um, where Johnny Gosh was at, it, it would open up a lot of eyes to understanding that there's some validity to this conspiracy. Um, right. So anyways, um, that, that was quite an experience. And in fact, it led me, you and I had talked um, earlier where I was sharing that it led me to write a chapter in my book um, that, uh, you know, was subsequently deleted out of the um, advice of one of the U.S. attorneys in Nebraska. So uh, I'd uncovered a lot of information, a lot of things, but it just wasn't time. And yeah. I think we're nearing maybe the time where we can start being more bold to discuss these things. And I think, you know, what's changed the game a bit has been, uh, you know, the, uh, the Pizzagate and the, uh, the Weinstein and the Jeffrey Epstein and, you know, Gislaine and, uh, the, even recently, the Wayfair uh, issue, um, the Wayfair scandal, which I, I understand. You know, one of the things that I want to point out on the conspiracy thing, and if I, I don't know if you're aware of the Wayfair issue. Are you aware of? I've heard of it. Can you explain it to our listeners? Yeah, so there was kind of a big thing just, just a few weeks ago um, where Wayfair is a website that sells items. And uh, a group of people were questioning the fact that there were wardrobes or dressers or items that were selling for tens of thousands of dollars. And an interesting, interesting thing to note is that the SKU number, um, if, you, if you search that SKU number, it would actually bring up pictures of kids um, that were... I, I, they weren't completely pornographic, but, um, you know, it was clear that they were sexualized in the pictures. Right. And um, so it was alleged that Wayfair was involved with facilitating the trafficking and sale of children. Now, I find it really fascinating that um, we have issues in this country where people all over the nation were willing to go into 18 month long investigations over really simple supposed scandals and spend 18 months and millions of dollars to investigate things. But somehow, despite the fact that we had proof of the SKU numbers and that we all know that a pillow doesn't go for, you know, $24,000 unless it's laced in gold. Um, and that's just a number I arbitrarily threw out there. So I'm not sure that there was a pillow, but there were many items similar to that, just clarification. Uh, but we don't go from spending millions of dollars in 18 months of investigation uh, for some simple things, and then suddenly have an issue like this allegation with visual proof 
that the SKU numbers linked up to some, in some cases, missing children, known missing children, and then dismissed that in 24 hours. And that's exactly what happened, is in 24 hours, less than 24 hours, the news media was out, uh, Wayfair was out saying, oh, this is a conspiracy, this is part of a, an online attempt to smear, despite the said evidence. So I will say this, one thing that the Wayfair thing did is at least it brought the, the issue of child sex trafficking further into the forefront of our, the, the society's consciousness. And I can tell you, even if Wayfair is not true, is really irrelevant. Because I can tell you this, 100% factually, that the FBI and police departments all over the country have rescued and arrested individuals directly involved with selling people online. And they do things such as getting on uh, what's called MMOs, um, which is online, you know, uh, multiplayer online kind of role-playing game. And they use code. And they'll say, hey, there's, uh, the elves are bringing in a shipment of young dwarves. Right. Um, and there'll be, you know, 27 axes and, you know, 15 pots of gold. And each of that is code. And the FBI has, has discovered trafficking rings utilizing the, that kind of online marketplace. Um, you know, I was directly involved with uh, the, the rescue of a young lady who was um, groomed by Xbox Live, someone on Xbox Live who was a known trafficker and found out she was missing, was able to, uh, a friend of a friend's, and found out she was missing, was able to make some phone calls to people in the FBI, talked about, hey, she was playing Xbox, and you're dealing with police officers who are not trained in the issue of human trafficking. I am, I'm, my gut feeling tells me that she was groomed via Xbox Live, and uh, so I would investigate that. Um, praise God, they, they found her, I think, within 24, 48 hours after wow. the initial thing. Um, so she was rescued. But so whether Wayfair is real or not, which I personally believe it is, um, just my own research and my own history and what I know of different organizations and you look at the links and follow the money. But even if it wasn't, the reality is this is how human traffickers are selling their product, selling human beings, selling children, making money off of them, whether it's the dark web, or whether it's a fake storefront with overpriced items because it's code, they love to hide in plain sight. And that's, if, if I could stress anything to people, it is trafficking exists because they hide in plain sight. They will play to your stereotypes and your prejudices all the time. And that's an important thing to remember in the United States is that Trafficking happens in every zip code. It's easy to believe that sex trafficking happens in China or Russia or wherever, but we don't like to admit that it is so very close to us, not just in the same zip code, but perhaps next door. There are stories after story that demonstrate that these things are very, very close. And we need to not deny that. And, and when we understand that, how close these things are to us, then we're that much more capable of helping those victims get out of the life. Yeah, 
one, one of the things that I was shocked about when getting into this is all the stereotypes I had in my own mind about the issue of human trafficking. In fact, even, even the more that I learned, it was almost like the more that I learned, the more that I was kind of stereotyping, even though I was learning more about it. So you start discovering, yes, human trafficking happens in America. Here's how it happens. They're groomed and then they're sold. And you start thinking, okay, sure, cities, you know, New York and LA, Chicago, um, not Topeka, Kansas, you know, um, not, uh, uh, I don't know, Platte City, Missouri, <laughs> you know, uh, or Grand Island, Nebraska, you know, surely it can't happen there, right? Um, the thing that shocked me the most is, is learning that a lot of these small towns have had it going on for years. And, well, and when you look at the sex trafficking maps across the United States, you'll see these hotspots like you just mentioned, New York, Los Angeles, Florida, but the smaller areas, the more rural that you just said, are very blacked out. There's no reports to Polaris or the National Trafficking Hotline on and on. And there are nearly 600 tribal nations within the contiguous United States that have missing people, people go missing all of the time. We don't have any information on those blacked out areas. <laughs> I love how we're hitting so many areas and, and topics and it, because people need to know the vastness of this industry. I mean, look at all the topics that we've already discussed. I, I, it starts to make sense as to why we have these high numbers, you know, some say up to 32, you know, million. Um, there, you know, there's higher numbers. Statistics are all over the place. I'm not a statistics guy because I just don't like the way that they're used. Right. I could care less if there's like 3 billion people trafficked or five. You know, it doesn't matter as long as that evil exists. We need to eradicate it. We have a responsibility to do that. Um, but this industry is so vast. And, you know, we had, we had talked about boys, um, which we should probably come back to, you know, just for a moment to kind of wrap up the SRA thing. But as much as boys are overlooked, you know, talking about stereotypes and playing into those stereotypes there is no other group that I, I can point to that has been more victimized in the issue of human trafficking than the Native American population in the United States of America. The reason why is because, as you mentioned, those, those missing persons often don't go reported. Um, there's a, a completely different response when they are reported. Uh, kidnappings are often not reported in that, you know, with, within the, the tribal areas. And, not just the tribal areas, let's just face it, you know what, even within other areas and communities, ethnicity does play a role. Refugee and, communities, yes. Refugee communities, um, I would even say, I personally am probably one of the last people who's likely to make race an issue, but I can honestly, sincerely say that when it comes to the issue of human trafficking, I have firsthand seen how the the not just the racial background but i would say more the so, social you know um economic background right. as as much if not more to 
to do with the perceived stereotypes or the lack of response that might come from uh, the media or law enforcement. Uh, you know, if, if you have a young white girl from a trailer park go missing, um, she's less likely to be reported and less likely to, to get the Amber Alerts and all those things issued. Um, say then if you had someone of any race from a higher, more affluent neighborhood. Um, so there, there is definitely a component of race and ethnicity, but I would say that there is also a huge component of your social economic background. Right, the economics um, of it. And that's yeah. where perhaps a, a, someone that goes missing is called just a runaway or, you know, they'll be back in 24, 48 hours. We don't report it until they've been gone for 24 hours. But the sad fact is that when you do that, you are less likely to find that person. It is the first few hours that they go missing that we need to begin the search. Um, and this leads us into more of the justice issue and law enforcement, because just because you report something doesn't mean that a report is written. And even if a report is written, you don't always get action like you think you may. And it really does depend on perhaps the jurisdiction or there's several factors that go into it. Economics is a big one. Or just to mention the concept of what human trafficking is. I mean, I, I can tell you firsthand, my wife and I were at, at a Starbucks and we were outside having our, our coffee enjoying our evening together. We saw an issue of human trafficking taking place. We called the police department immediately. I even had a pretty good relationship with the police department, um, not dealing with human trafficking, but just a good relationship uh, with the ministry work that I was involved in. All right. And two police officers come out. Next thing you know, I, I'm finding that my wife and I are having to take 15 to 20 minutes to explain to, you know, officer friendly here what human trafficking is and why he should care about this sweet, cute little 10-year-old um, African-American girl out on the streets by herself, who we know is being manipulated and a victim of human trafficking. And, and we're having to educate the police officer about this issue. Things have gotten better, but when I say they've gotten better, I mean, listen, like, like some of these police officers, it's not their fault. They go to the police yeah. academy, and they are thrown all of this information and they might get 15 minutes on human trafficking. You and I, uh, you know, look at how long we've been talking. We haven't even scratched the surface and we've right. had all these issues. Imagine okay. getting 15 minutes on human trafficking as a police officer. And they don't get paid any more to go to extra trainings or uh, attend conferences, anything like that. They're always trying to catch up because the crime is so high anyway. Yeah, and that's why it's, it's good to see that, that more cities are adopting special trafficking task forces um, where they do have some law enforcement personnel working with nonprofit communities and developing partnerships so that uh, you, you, know, you have a handful of people who are continuously getting trained, learning about not only the industry, but uh, the growing trends and how things are shifting. And then having that partnership with the um, nonprofit community, uh, people like myself, 
who maybe have taken more time to go a little bit deeper and maybe been a little bit bold to go places that I can go that a police officer can't. Um, you know, like one brief story and I'm not going to give any information away other than this is an example of how nonprofits can work with law enforcement. Um, you know, I probably shouldn't share that. I, I will say this. <laughs> the beauty of nonprofits working with law enforcement is that there are things that nonprofits can do that police officers cannot. Right. For example, a nonprofit organization can drive across a state line and maybe assist in the um, extraction of someone who is a trafficking victim. Now, I don't recommend anyone to do that on their own at all, ever. Um, you know, I'm talking about trained personnel who have been doing it for years, uh, oftentimes former law enforcement or former military. But the reality is there's things that they can do that police officers can't. <laughs> You know, if, if you see a girl who's in, you know, a, a kitchen somewhere and the bad guys have left for a moment, as a nonprofit citizen, you have a lot more flexibility to go in and get that girl out of there than a police officer would. Well, a police and a police officer, officer might... <laughs> right, and, and people clam up when they see law enforcement. They don't know if they're going to be rescued or if they're going to be arrested. True. Very true. So that partnership between the nonprofit community and our law enforcement is crucial. I believe it's, it's one of the most important things when it comes to actually executing justice, um, you know, from the, from the point of rescuing to the point of restoration, uh, mm -hmm. to the point of um, beyond restoration and, and really empowering people to get on with their lives, however they freely choose to do so. So, yeah. And, and if you notice, and, you know, I've mentioned this to you before, but the constant theme throughout all of this really comes down to authentic relationship. Right. You know, like we, we cannot um, change a community unless we build authentic relationship within that community. If there's an issue of modern day slavery or human trafficking within a community, the more that you empower and teach that community to come together and work in unity, then the easier it is for them to identify and to recognize and then effectively respond to the issues of modern day slavery within their area. Um, I always go back to one of the stories in, in my book, and this alludes to one of your previous questions. Um, you know, we think big cities, but we don't often think gated communities. You know, gated communities, six bedroom plus homes, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be mansions, but you know, um, nice homes, sometimes too close together. <laughs> Um, you know, no yards, but uh, yeah, you have this gated community and, you know, there's a story where, where this girl, she was trapped in a home for three years and the clients would just, would, they'd drive into this gated community, they'd drive up into the home and she's like, when she was later rescued, she would comment how, and she was underage by the way, um, but she would comment how uh, her neighbors would be out mowing the lawn, walking the dogs, uh, doing normal stuff that you'd expect in a suburb gated community and never thought to ask, why are all these different cars here? And who are all these different girls who occasionally get to come out for some sunlight in the front yard, but they never really see coming or going, except maybe some new girls would show up and other girls would be sent out because it was part of an actual ring. Mm -hmm. um, 
and that was three years that she was in that community. So when you're looking to make a difference or make an impact with ending or eradicating modern day slavery, it really does come down to authentic relationships, building community, knowing what to look for. Go out and meet your neighbors. Know who's living down the street. Um, if you go to the same shop, you have a responsibility to get to know the name of that person that, you, that, that recognizes you when you come in. Say something nice to them. Get to know them. Um, without doing these kinds of things, we're, we're not going to be able to uh, shine light into the darkness. And, you know, we talk a lot about darkness, but we don't talk a lot about what it takes to shine light. And we think that to shine light, you've got to be, you know, Liam Neeson, you know, kicking down doors and, you know, speaking with a, a really awesome accent and pointing a gun at someone. Um, shining a light can simply be asking the person checking you out, how are you doing? Sure. As, you know, in my book, I talk about uh, the issue at the subway um, that, that didn't make national news, it made local news, but can you imagine someone being trafficked and held captive at a subway? I mean, and it took someone asking, how are you today? To find yeah. out what was going on. It's as simple as that. And so from, from the beginning to the very end of rescue and restoration, it all comes down to authentic relationship. We have to have partnerships and groups working together, which as you know, isn't, isn't always easy. Um, but without that, we, we're just not going to make much of a difference. Right. I agree. And you hit most of these topics um, that we've covered today. I think you hit them all in your book. Again, it's called Land of the Free, Human Trafficking in America and Solutions to End It. I encourage all of our listeners to find this book. It's available on Amazon. I just found it last week. Um, and the author's name, who we've been speaking with today, is Nicholas Canuso, C-A-N. USO. Um, I thank you for joining us today, Nick. Uh, hopefully we can have more conversations in the future. You're invaluable to the movement and we're very grateful that for all of your work. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, I really enjoyed hitting all those topics. Um, it's, it's something, as you can tell, I'm, I'm passionate about and uh, dedicated my life to. Um, I'd also like to point out uh, that in my book, um, I, I did something unique where at the end of each chapter, uh, there's actually a prayer guide. And so if you are a person who believes in prayer, uh, I break it down on how to pray for the trafficker, how to pray for the victim, and uh, how to pray for the customer. Something that we don't think about. You know, um, one of the things that a lot of trafficking organizations really, really hit on is they say, if, if there weren't customers, we wouldn't have the industry, which is pretty much like any industry, right? If we didn't have the demand, they'll use the word demand, which is a chapter in my book, demand. Um, if you don't have the demand, you're not going to have the issue. And unfortunately, that demand is there. So we really need to learn how to pray for the customers that whatever it is that's driving them to have that demand um, that that would get broken and one of the best compliments i think i've ever had on my book was from a lady who is not a, a christian she's not a believer um, not even sure that she believes in god but she wanted to to write me to let me know how appreciative she was 
that that prayer section was in there after each chapter because she said it was a, a, a cleansing rain for her soul. She wow. said, it's really neat to read some of the scripture passages that I have. Mm-hmm. And it made her shift from being angry and sad and just feeling hopeless to feeling, okay, I need to change my mindset. We can make a difference. There is light that we can shine into darkness. So even if you're not a believer and if you think some of the stuff, you know, is just out there and wacky, um, you know, that prayer section isn't just there, you know, for, for you to pray. It's, it's also there for you to sort of change your mindset. And, and yeah, it's an evil problem. It's dark. It's ugly. It's disgusting. And we can all feel slimed by it and not even want to talk about it. Um, I mean, I, I didn't even want to talk about it with my wife because I was worried that it would somehow uh, negatively impact our, our intimacy and our relationship because you're talking about some really awful, evil stuff. Right. But that's a lie from the enemy. It's a lie from the enemy that, that tries to, to get you focused on the negative as opposed to the hope that comes with the promise of a better tomorrow. And again, shining that light in the darkness. And so, you know, whether you're a praying person or not, sometimes just getting your mind into agreement with the positive things that we can do to make a change is the light that gets shined into the darkness. That's beautiful. Thank you, Nick, for everything that you contributed. And, and we wish you nothing but the best and we will keep you in our prayers. That's all we have for the Crusader Foundation today, folks. And we'll see you again at the next podcast. All right. Thank you very much. Thank <laughs> you.